1: Hello and welcome to The Bestseller Experiment, where we continue to discover what makes a bestseller and inspire you to start, finish and publish your book. I'm Mark Stay, And
0: I'm Mark DeVoe and we're very delighted to have you with us this week and we're killing ourselves laughing and we'll probably explain why later. But uh, we would like to thank, this is very, very serious, we'd like to thank our amazing patrons this week. Mm. We have got... Um, two um, wonderful patrons who've joined us this week. Barbara Sumner, thank you so much, Barbara. You, Barbara. And Bruce Vokt, who we're going to be talking about later on today because yes. he sent us a brilliant email. He's but got a question you would, for you all, is not he? It is, yeah. If you yes. would like to be like the bees, Bruce and Barbara, this week, maybe we could have some Cs join us next week, some Charlies. If your name is, if your name's Charlie, <laughs> Caroline, Claire, or Camille, Claire, Camille, yeah. it's your turn to be the patrons <laughs> yeah. next week. So to do that, folks, you have to go along to um, bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash support uh, sign up for a pittance less than a starbucks a month and you will get access to amazing content which will keep you warm through those cold winter's nights or mm. if you're in australia or new zealand or anywhere down there you lucky folks you can listen to it on the beach yeah. with, with your headphones as the waves like wash over you so there you go folks
1: mr stay uh, you've had a busy old couple of weeks haven't you I've, I I will turn up to the opening of a crisp packet and yeah, I've had some, we I've been doing some great library events as part of the British Library's uh, fantasy realms of imagination thing. So uh, I had a, a great event, uh, me and Gabby Hutchinson-Crouch talking about humorous fantasy, then I had a, an event at uh, Guildford Library uh, with Jen Williams and A.Y. Chow, both of whom have been on the podcast. I want uh, to ask
0: you about that quickly, hang on a minute. So I'm I'm doing this thing called milestones. We've been talking a bit about it on the podcast yes, about like, yes. I, and we were talking about this event before. Yeah, and you mentioned something to me, and I instantly went
1: milestone. I'm adding <laughs> it to the list. <laughs> Tell everyone what happened. I had a I had a proper proper queue like an uh, English queue. Yeah, proper queue of people queuing up, lining up to, to to get my book signed. It was great. I mean, I've had I've had two or three people. I've had a cluster. I've had two people, you know, a few people. Millers, milling around. But this was, this was a proper queue. Oh, and I was like, oh, Mark. bloody hell. And I, I, I okay. sold out of books again. So it's like the MCM Comic Con. I didn't, I did because when I did the, um, I did an event at Ashford Library with Gabby and it was really good, really good event. And I sold a handful of books. And mm. so I thought, oh, the next one, I'll take out a handful of books again. All gone. Um, so yeah. I love it. it good. That's, well, that's another milestone, a queue. I love that word
0: Q. People in North America don't know what that means. No, they call it the amount line. of times they've gone you have for to queue get in they, line. Yeah, they yeah, literally yeah, think, "Why well, yeah. big letter Q? What do you mean?" But line up, line up. Um, but yeah, two two milestones. One to just get a lineup for your books, and but to sell out of the books that you have. Yeah, that's huge. No, brilliant that's good. stuff. That's good, good. So this, folks, it's just, you have to aspire to this, right? But I mean, tell <laughs> people about your very first book signing. Can you remember that? I mean, I don't think we talked about that, but. Um.
1: Oh, now let me think. Because that think must
0: it, be a weird experience. Because you probably feel a bit like imposter syndrome. It's like you, you've done, you've queued, you've queued up at ones before, but to actually <laughs> yeah. be the other side of the table
1: must feel a bit weird. I'm trying to think where it was. It was for Robot Overlords, and I think it was at. Um, Is it one of it the was at a, a I think it was at a comic con. I think it was at a comic con. Um And and that that was a strange. Because I did have a little queue of people for that actually, uh, mm. well, a, a sort of a steady stream of people, which was nice because of the film. Uh, and then I, I remember I did a Galance Fest not long after that, and they, for some reason, they thought it'd be great. I did it to do London and Manchester in the same day, so we we were in a it, we did uh, the uh, Galance Fest in in the morning in in London at Foils in London. Then we all jumped in the van. So this is me. This is Rockstar. Uh, this is like Leeds it, and it was, Festival, Mark. You you listen to the lineup, man. It was me. Gerber, Crombie, Joe Hill, okay, what? Brandon Sanderson, all in a van, uh, Joanne Harris, Elliot de Boddard, I think Tom like- Toner was there uh I, and apologies to anyone i've missed but this was like the creme de la creme of science fiction fantasy authors all in this one van it's like if the van gone in you know they're blown up or whatever that it would have been wiped out you know the greatest generation of fantasy authors for decades <laughs> apart from me i um, <laughs> you know, talk about imposter syndrome sitting there. And, and brandon brandon never stopped working all the way up in the car. Tapper, You're tapper, kidding tapper. me? Yeah, really? Yeah. Yeah. What? Well, he, look, he's output. You know, I he's know. the hardest working man in show business. You know, Mental. so um yeah, he was he was typing all the way up, Uh and it was great, and it was it was really good fun. But then I got up to Manchester, and they had all these um all of us sitting there, uh and they couldn't find my book. They found one copy of Robot Overlords. No. So I went <laughs> all the way epoxy Manchester to sign one. He was book? the lucky person. Uh, I can't remember. If it's you, do so come and say hello. <laughs> but yeah, I remember. And I'm sitting next to, I think it was next to Elliot. And Elliot, I think it was her first or second book, which was winning awards left, right and centre. You know, so, and I, everyone had a line except me, you know, everyone was like, hello. <laughs> <laughs> I'll sign your hand or something exactly, else. If you yeah, like. Yeah, I yeah.
0: think it's, do you know, I was just thinking <laughs> book signings, such an interesting thing when you think about it, because I can't think of any other profession where that happens like because if like a rock star's walking down oxford street for example and you know like i saw des linem once walking down oxford street, he a <laughs>
1: street. And, <laughs> i
0: know i know slight tangent but for any grandstand fans in the uk he was brilliant anyway I walked past him on the street and um and i had to stop him and just just say thank you but if you ask someone for their autograph it's usually when they're out and about and you know Another one was um who was the lady that wrote the Thornbirds? Cole- Colleen McCulloch. Colleen, yeah. I bumped into yeah. her. My mum loved wow. her as a writer. I was about my eight years too. old. yeah. And I got her autograph for my mum, which was, and I went home. Very nice. My mum said, what did you get? What did you get in
1: London then, love, in Oxford Street? I said, well, for starters, mum, I got an autograph of your And She's like, what? Well, I said, yeah, I bumped into her. It's weird. But, um, I, did, I did that with Val Dunican. We went on a school trip oh, to Bird World. Do you we'd remember Bird, at- Bird, at- Bird Just from the A3. <laughs> Um, and, and Val Dunican, uh, was filming his TV show there. And my nan adore. it's called him Val Darnaghan because she's Irish. She's, oh, oh, I love Val Darnaghan. And I, I went and got his autograph for my nan. So he, I think he was oh. the first famous person I met actually. with. Wow.
0: And that's where it all started, right? I mean, yeah, yeah. You're kind of collecting, <laughs> collecting celebrities and <in> publishing. <laughs> Do you know, everyone's probably thinking right now. What are you? I thought this on? was
1: a podcast about. I books. thought this podcast, <laughs> but this is
0: actually this is fully scripted. This everything you've just heard is fully scripted, but we did it in a kind of like amateur dramatics way of improvisation. Yeah, it's amateur uh, in the way that jazz <laughs> is often improvised. Mark, so the little clue there to our, our guest segue of the year, mm. segue mm. of the year. But we've got a long interview today, haven't we, Mark? And it's it's a it's a really brilliant
1: interview, and I think. We should dive straight in. because We should, we should. Tell us about Jake Lamar. Jake Lamar uh, grew up in the Bronx, New York, and after graduating from Harvard, he spent six years writing for Time magazine, but he's lived in Paris since 1993. He teaches creative writing at one of the top universities there. He's the author of a memoir, seven novels, essays, reviews, short stories, a play, but his most recent work... Viper's Dream is both a crime novel and an audio drama set in the jazz world of Harlem, and it's magical. We discuss how Viper's Dream was developed as both a radio play and a novel, how he saved himself from drowning in research, and why he got editorial feedback while recovering in an intensive care unit.
0: Brilliant. Folks, you're going to enjoy this one. Sit back, and Mark, we've got to do it, haven't we? This is a nice, nice. interview. Nice, <laughs> so enjoy this great chat with Mark interviewing Jake Lamar.
1: Jake Lamar, welcome to the bestseller experiment. How are you today, sir?
2: Very well, thank you, Mark. Uh, thanks for having me on, Mark.
1: Our absolute pleasure and a, a real joy because uh, the Viper's Dream, Viper's Dream, is out now both in uh, Europe, uh, the UK, and in the United States, and it's a it's it's a world that. Of uh, jazz, and it's a world of crime, and it's a world of uh, it's. It's just fascinating to me. It's brilliant. So, tell us about Viper's Dream, and in particular, Clyde the Viper Morton.
2: Yeah, well, actually, there were there were sort of a, a th- three reasons why I wanted to write this book. First, is my 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 lifelong love of jazz. Um, I grew up with the music. I, no one in my entire family, no one in my extended family was a musician, but we everybody loved music. I mean, so the record player was on, the radio was on. Um, I was born in 1961, so the first 10 years of my life coincided with one of the most uh, exciting decades uh, for popular music in mm-hmm. the 20th century. And uh, jazz, you know, always stood out for me, Uh, different from pop music. Uh, My mother was really into Count Basie and Duke Ellington. I had an uncle who had a great jazz collection, and he introduced me to Miles Davis, Thelonious Monk, Charlie Parker. When I first started taking my writing seriously at college, I would listen to jazz when I wrote and uh, and all through my writing life, i've I've always had music on to kind of get me into that that trance you need to be in when you write. <laughs> so so, so I think it was it was it was kind of inevitable that someday I would write about jazz. Uh, um, this is my eighth book, so it took me a while to get around to it. Um, and I kind of needed to find a way in. And that leads to the the, the second uh, uh, influence, motivation, spark. And uh, and that's a book uh, which is tragically out of print. It was called The, the Three Wishes. And um, uh, there was a woman who really existed, the Baroness uh, Pannonica uh, de Konigsvater, Pannonica Rothschild de Konigsvater. She was known as the Jazz Baroness, She was a European, a Rothschild heiress, um, was a a resistance fighter during World War II. And uh, in the 1950s, as she said, she was living the dreary life of a diplomat's wife when one day she heard Round Midnight by Thelonious Monk. And this was uh, an epiphany for her. She thought, "I, I must meet this composer. She wound up meeting Monk, I think in Paris was the first time. And then... Followed him to New York uh, to to meet that world of of jazz musicians from the 1950s, the heart of the the, the, the bebop era. Um, she got to know all of these famous musicians. She was incredibly rich, so she was you know taking out suites in luxury hotels in New York. And uh, one night in March of 1955, Charlie Parker dropped dead in her suite at the Stanhope Hotel. Yeah. So she was no longer welcome at New York hotels. But she loved musicians and all-night jam sessions. So she bought this Bauhaus-style house in Weehawken, New Jersey, directly across the the, the river from, uh, from from Manhattan. And this became a kind of hangout for these jazz musicians. It was known as the Cat House. Which was a double entendre because you know the, the 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 men in the jazz world were known as cats, mm. so it was a hangout for the for the two legged black cats of the jazz world, <laughs> but also for a hundred furry felines. Nika, as she was known to her friends, was a real cat lady, and there were you know a hundred cats roaming around this place. So I had known about the cat house for years; I'd known about Nika, but I discovered this book, *The Three Wishes* which was published in France first. Uh, um, I've lived in Paris for 30 years, so I discovered this book in Paris. And um, and I learned um, that Nika, starting in 1961, would ask the the, the jazz people at her house, um, if you had three wishes to be instantly granted, what would they be? Yeah. And they would give their answers, and she would take photos of, of, of the artist. So here was a book, a compilation published long after her death, of these jazz musicians pictures of them their answer to the question the book came out in english a couple years later and now as i say it's out of print sadly but that book sort of gave me a way in i thought oh here's a way to write about jazz you know i was looking for a way in and finally there was the third factor involved in the 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 origins of this book that was a um my my discovery of a writer named chester himes i mean Mm -hmm. i i I discovered him only when I came to Paris. Chester Himes was a great African American author who is still underrecognized in America. Uh, mm. He was Born in 1909, his first book uh, published in 1945 is called "If He Hollers, Let Him Go," mm. and he published a series of novels that were that were labeled protest fiction, you know, politically engaged novels about race in America. But then, at the at the at the suggestion of his French translator who was also an editor of the first great crime imprint in France, the Serie Noire, published by Gallimard, uh, Marcel Duhamel suggested to Himes that he write a crime novel because he felt his style fit perfectly with the genre. So Himes embarked on a series of nine novels set in Harlem, known as the Harlem Cycle. Um, and these novels, they're just fantastic, uh, published between the late 50s and the late 60s. Um, they're said in Harlem of two black police detectives as the protagonists, two detectives named, nicknamed Gravedigger Jones and <laughs> Coffin Ed Johnson. And the Harlem, the books are hilarious. I mean, Cotton comes to Harlem is the best known, a rage in Harlem. Um, they're 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 funny, they're wild. Himes depicts Harlem as this this, this violent phantasmagoria and 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 gravedigger and coffin ed in order to protect. To protect the decent, hardworking people of the community, have to be the baddest of the bad. You know, they go up against an amazing universe of, of 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 sick criminals and Muslims and hustlers and and all manner of evil person. And a digger and coffinette have to be badder than all these bad people. They 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 they're they're protecting the normal folk from. So. Love of Jazz, the Baroness's book, I was reading all these Himes novels, and I thought, let me try my hand at at a real hard-boiled crime novel, a hard-boiled crime novel in the tradition of Chester Himes, Dashiell Hammett, Raymond Chandler, set in the jazz world of Harlem. So that's how this all began.
1: Fantastic, fantastic! Lots to unpack there. Clyde the Viper Morton. He's he's a character, as you say, like like Chester Himes' detectives. He's he's got a moral code, but it's it sort of he's got to be better than other people, and that gets him into trouble, doesn't it? And and there's a reason that he's called uh Vi- why well, he gets the nickname Viper as well, isn't it? Can you tell us about that?
2: Yeah. So Clyde Morton grows up. Um, he's born in Georgia um, in 1917. His family has to flee Georgia in 1919 when his father is lynched. His father was a, a blacksmith and was basically lynched because he was good at his job. Um, he was he was creating competition. Um, um, all of his clients before World War I were black folk in the county. But then after he returns from France and returns from serving in the war, he starts to attract white clients. The, the white blacksmith's guild doesn't like this competition. They tell him to stop uh, accepting white customers. He doesn't, and uh, he's lynched. So he's basically lynched for being good at his job. The family flees to Alabama and when uh young Clyde Morton, he's two years old when they have to flee, has no memory of his father, but discovers a trumpet that his father brought back from the war in France. uh His father didn't play the trumpet; it was kind of a trophy he must have come across somewhere so uh Clyde sets about teaching himself to play the trumpet you know with the with the, the help of his uncle Wilton, who's a blues man in Alabama. And Uncle Wilton encourages Clyde to to go to New York and become the next Louis Armstrong. Clyde arrives in Harlem in 1936. He's 19 years old. And at his first audition, learns he has no talent whatsoever. (laughs) The the bass player who auditions in Porkchop Bradley tells him, this this, this is the worst thing I ever heard. How how did you think you were a musician? So he was completely deluded. So his first dream is shattered. Workshop to console him offers him a joint and Clyde Morton discovers marijuana for the first time and, um, and takes to it very quickly. And, um, Pork um, Porkchop informs him that, you know, marijuana back then in 1936 was really like this secret thing that was that was mainly used by black American jazz musicians. It was not at all a mainstream thing. <laughs> um, and uh, and uh, and Porkchop tells him, you know, um, well, we, we marijuana smokers well, we're known as vipers because of that hissing sound right. you make when you're stuck on a joint. And there are all these songs in in, in, in jazz with this like secret code. Um, so Viper's Dream is actually a Django Reinhardt song, which means right. the, the dream of the marijuana smoker. Um, Fats Waller has a hilarious song called If You're a Viper. Um, and it was just like this inside joke. Um, and so Clyde, a series of coincidences becomes the main supplier of marijuana to jazz musicians in Harlem. And he is known as the Viper among the Vipers of Harlem. He's the Viper. And so he gets the name Clyde Viper Morton. And, uh, and in that day, you know, jazz musicians they, they 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 considered um uh marijuana a creative tool uh mm. or a harmless recreation uh louis armstrong called it medicine you know when he mm. grew up in, in new orleans uh, marijuana was known as medicine but then another um drug comes on the jazz scene in the 1940s, and that's heroin and uh, the the bebop revolution, this new style of jazz. This is when jazz makes the transition from music you could dance to, to music you actually had to listen to. Um, and Charlie Parker, Dizzy Gillespie, these are the early pioneers of this style, bebop. And Charlie Parker, as the world knows, was heavily into to heroin. It, it wound up destroying him. But it spread very quickly in the in, in that world. So um, Clyde the Viper Morton, who, because he has no talent as a jazz musician, but loves the music, feels that he's been helping jazz musicians in their creative process by supplying them with marijuana. But he sees heroin as an existential threat to jazz because it starts to kill off the form's greatest artists like Charlie Parker. So that's the... The, the the crux of the crime aspect of the book that 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 my guy Clyde the Viper Morton is a principled marijuana dealer at war against unprincipled heroin dealers
1: fantastic now as i understand it this story started as a play on uh, a radio play radio, uh, radio france uh, 10 half hour episodes so i talk about the transition from the play to the novel because you know, if you're writing these 10 half hour episodes, I presume you're ending each one on a cliffhanger to get people coming back for more the next week. And, and you were using many, many musical cues in the play as well. So talk about that transition from the radio format to, to the novel.
2: Well, actually, the two projects evolved together. I I, I describe the novel and the radio drama as non-identical twins. (laughs) They 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 gestated and were born at the same time, but the resemblance is is the the differences are more interesting than the resemblance. Um, So, I started out with an outline for a novel, and I know you 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 guys like to talk about the process. I'm 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 a big outline guy. You know, Um, I think it's just. The only way to organize your imagination, um, and and to make sure things just don't waft through your brain, <laughs> so 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 I'm very big on outlines. um So I had a pretty detailed outline for the novel of Viper's Dream, but then a play that I'd written, a stage play um, called Brothers in Exile, which was about the relationship between three Black American expat writers in Paris in the 1950s, Richard Wright, James Baldwin, and the aforementioned Chester Himes, to play about their um, friendship and rivalry. Um, A friend of mine, a colleague in the French uh, crime fiction world, uh, uh, connected me with a producer at Radio France. He said, you know, that play would make a great radio play. And you know, uh, in, in America, television killed off radio drama in about 1955. In France and England, radio drama never entirely went away. I mean, I know people have written radio dramas for the BBC and uh, and on on Radio France. It's 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 still a thing, yeah. you know. Um, yeah. um, so I adapted Brothers in Exile for the radio. And I loved working with this director, a terrific cast of actors, you know, the old fashioned radio days stuff with sound effects and all that. Um, And, and I just loved the form and, uh, and learned that radio France has the rights to play any song you can name Uh, like the BBC. And I imagine NPR in America, you know, these national radio stations, I think they pay some giant fee or whatever, but, you can play any song you can name. They can play any song you can name. So I thought, ah, I had the outline for Viper's Dream, the novel, but I thought this might be interesting as a, as a radio play. So I, they have this series on France Culture, um, one of the one of the channels of Radio France. Every night, Monday through Friday at 8.30, there's a half-hour radio show, a feuilleton, a series. Usually they're 5, 10, sometimes as long as 15 episodes. So I came up with a separate outline. For a 10-episode radio drama, I could put musical selections in the script. So when uh, the femme fatale of the novel, uh, Yolanda de Vray, uh, known as Yo-Yo, who dreams of being a jazz diva, when she first appears, I wrote in the script we hear Duke Ellington's prelude to a kiss 1957 recording with Johnny Hodges on saxophone. (laughs) And my director says, okay. And that's how I wrote it. So, so I wrote the 10 episodes, musical selections throughout. There are about a hundred tracks in the, in the radio show. We had, it was a huge production. We We had 50 actors. Uh, 35 black actors, no one could think of a we had the, the creme de la creme of a of, 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 of French stage and cinema working on this radio play. And uh, no one could think of a of a production that employed 35 black actors in one go in France. <laughs> uh 13 days of recording, 10-hour days. Um, it was just total fun. Um and after we finished the well, after I'd finished the script and before the recording. I return my attention to the outline for the for the novel. So that's why I say that they, they evolved at the same time. Um, the biggest challenge, um, well, you know, writing for the radio is, as you say, you know, you have to have a cliffhanger at the end of each uh, episode. You're writing in these 30 segment, 30 minute chunks, you know. So you're really writing in a box, you know, as a as, as a writing exercise. It's it's fascinating. Um But, you know, you've just got to streamline everything. Um, And I found when I returned my attention to the novel that I had let the music create the atmosphere for in the radio version. Now, sitting down in front of the, the page, I had to... Make you feel and 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 hear and sense Harlem, you know. And so you've I got have, to be Duke Ellington. <laughs> I have to be Duke Ellington. <laughs> really Duke, I, Duke no to to be Duke in the radio in the radio version. And then I had to come up with this uh, 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 as the author, and it was the biggest challenge um, um, creating that ambiance. And I've been very happy that the the book got terrific reviews. The book came out in France two years ago. Came Out in the UK back in April. Uh, it's just out in the States. Uh, we're in September now. I don't know when the show's going to air. It seems like you guys have a, have a backlog.
1: <laughs> Hopefully, not too long. Hopefully, not too long.
2: All right. Well, uh, well, it just came out in the States on September 19th. Um, and the early reviews are great. Um, and I've got a lot of compliments on the ambiance, the atmosphere, the way that I've i evoke Harlem. And that is just the greatest compliment for me because that was. The single biggest challenge uh, moving from the radio to the to the to the novel version.
1: Fantastic! I don't envy you that. I really don't because it's just <laughs> having to be Duke Ellington or Charlie Parker. I used to. You mentioned um, writing to jazz to get into that kind of trance state. I did. I was introduced to in particular Charlie Parker when I was a teenager by a friend who was a big jazz fan, and I've tried typing along. With Charlie Parker, and it's the fastest I've ever written. <laughs> <Really>? <laughs> <laughs> my wrists in, you know, frozen peas afterwards. So it's not not easy, not easy at all. Um, and also, listeners, there is um, there's a Spotify playlist of uh, songs featured in the story. So we'll put a link in the show notes. You can you can check that out and hear some, frankly, just astonishing music. Let let's go back, shall we, Jake? Because as I understand it. Your first, The first short story that you ever wrote when I believe you were 12 years old it was as far away from the jazz world as you can get. It was it was a murder mystery set on the English moors. Is that correct? Tell us about it. Yes, that.
2: I, I didn't quite know what the English moors were, but <laughs> I was reading a lot of Agatha Christie and Arthur Conan Doyle. Yeah. So I, I grew up um, um, in, in the Bronx um, down the street from Yankee Stadium, the great you know, cathedral of baseball um um you know we was a modest family um and uh, and i got to go to this very progressive elite school on half scholarship a place called fieldston where i got a fantastic education and um when i was 12 years old our teacher assigned us uh, had us write try our hand at writing a short story and so based on my reading of Christie and conan doyle I, you know, black kid growing up in the Bronx, wrote this murder mystery set in a mansion with a, an inspector from Scotland Yard showing up to investigate a series of murders, and of course, the 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 butler did it. Um, <laughs> and uh, the teacher loved the story, read the story aloud to the class, and I saw the reaction. You know, people gasped, people laughed, people were totally caught up in in the spell of the story. And from that moment on, I wanted to be a writer.
1: Fantastic. Now you studied at Harvard, and then you wrote for Time magazine for a few years, I believe. Um, so tell us about that period.
2: Yeah, yeah. So I got into Harvard, um, knew in my heart I wanted to be a writer, had, had taken uh, creative writing courses at Fieldstone. You know, um, I, I took a couple creative writing courses when I was still in high school, got to Harvard and just, you know, was, was, was scared about you know, how do you become a writer? You know, um, how is this even possible? Um, But I was working on my writing all the time, even as I was trying to like, tell myself I should go to law school. I took creative writing classes four out of eight semesters. I wrote movie reviews for the Harvard Crimson, the, the student daily paper. Um, I was in a major history and literature where I was cranking out papers all the time. So I was working on my writing all the time. And then by sheer luck of a connection, uh, one of my professors knew a writer at Time Magazine, and um, they just uh, you know gave me a shot, uh, put me on a six month uh, trial. I mean, I was paid, you know, uh, but that's how they would try writers out. You know, they bring you on mm-hmm. for six months and uh, see if you could write in the famous Time style. Now, back in those days. Um, time magazine had a system that they started back in the twenties where you had reporters all over the world, but writers in New York. So, so if you were a writer in the New York office, you would get reportage from wherever the middle East, central America, Washington, DC. And it was your job to tell the news in this sort of snappy style developed by Henry Luce back in the, in the twenties and thirties. Um, so I I kind of saw it as a word game, you know. I really I I, I I I I I really enjoyed the 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 line by line aspect of the job. Um, I spent most of my years in the nation section, so all things pertaining to the United States. um, Started out writing a lot of uh you know crime stories, really, you know, um, uh, mass murders <laughs> and robberies and such, and then you know graduated to politics. Um, so. It was the 1980s um the reagan era my politics were always very much to the left so uh, so so politically it was uncomfortable sometimes um there were 60 writers on the on the new york staff it was a very white male environment uh, there were never more than three black writers during the six years i was there i was often the only black writer on staff so in some ways it was awkward, but I did well. You know, I I wrote cover stories and uh, and uh, and I was the single best thing about Time Magazine was having a weekly deadline. If you mm-hmm. couldn't make your deadline, you weren't gonna survive at Time Magazine. It was a weekly magazine, um, but I knew I didn't want to spend my career at Time Magazine. I, I really saw it as a as as a, as, a, as a kind of apprenticeship because I knew I wanted to write books. I knew I wanted to be a creative writer. Um, but, you know, after three years there, you know, you, you get caught up in, you know, your day-to-day life. Uh, and, and I, and I realized finally I had to do something to, 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 to focus on my own writing. And I know, uh, again, I know you guys love to talk about the process. Uh, I do too. Um, and everybody's different, you know, um, but what worked for me, the only thing that worked for me I needed long, empty hours where I wasn't doing anything but focusing on my writing, what I wanted to get down on the page or the the screen. Um, And so my work week was basically Tuesday to Saturday. And I decided, okay, Sunday I'll rest. And Monday I'm going to lock myself in my apartment in Manhattan and I'm just going to write whatever comes into my mind. And so I tell people who are interested in writing, you know, find a time, you know, maybe it's Saturday afternoons, maybe it's one day in the week when you first wake up or one night during the week when, you, when you're when you about to go to bed, but find two, three, four hours where you're only focused on writing. You're not answering the phone, you're not checking your email, you're not updating your social media, you're just trying to get what's in your head on the page or the screen, do that for a year, and see how you feel. Right. You might find you don't like writing. It's <laughs> absolutely solitary. It can be very tedious if you're trying to do it well. Um, but you might find you're sitting with some interesting material, and uh, and that was the case for me. After a year, I find I find I was constantly writing about my father. Uh, we were estranged at the time. But he was just this wild, larger-than-life figure—a guy who'd grown up poor in Georgia, moved to New York, did well for himself, had dreams of becoming a billionaire in the construction business in New York, got mixed up with some shady people, lost everything, and then disappeared from uh, from uh, from New York. And um, and uh, I anyway, I wound up tracking him down and writing the story. Um, which was basically, basically, it's a memoir. There's nothing invented in that book. Um, um, it is an absolute true-to-life story of my relationship with my father. And through our story, I tell the story of the evolution of racial politics from the 1930s to the 1980s. Now, back in those days, um, you could not get published in America without having an agent. Um, because I was at Time Magazine, it was easy for me to get an agent. So I went and met with an agent. Um, we were both in our 20s at the time. She's still my agent <laughs> since 1988. Now she's a big shot at CAA. But, uh, but at the time, she was an independent operator in Greenwich Village. Um, uh, we met, we clicked. I wrote a proposal for this memoir, got a deal with an imprint of Simon & Schuster that no longer exists. Back in those days, also writers got decent advances, which mm. isn't always the case anymore. Um, so as soon as I did the deal, quit my job at Time Magazine at the age of twenty-eight and embarked on this crazy life as an independent writer.
1: Fantastic, I love it. You mentioned that the the Time Magazine style, which you said was very short and punchy and line by line, and and Chester Himes writes short, terse sentences, action. You know that. Those two influences did was it did that really inform your style from then on or did it evolve over time?
2: Well, the Time magazine wasn't so much short and punchy as as there was a kind of weird grandiloquence in the Time style. Back in uh back in the 1920s or 1930s, um some some uh some writer in the New Yorker, I think it was Alexander Walcott, wrote a wrote a parody of Time Style. And he said, you know. Backward ran the sentences until reeled <laughs> the mind. And so, when they wanted to train you, at time, um, I spent my first six months that that trial period mainly writing milestones, which was not exclusively obituaries. It was sort of like anything that happened to a famous person: so deaths, marriages, divorces, births of children. If it happened to a famous person, it wound up in milestones. So the milestone style. You'd say, "Died um, in Geneva, Switzerland. Dashing, debonair, British, Oscar-winning actor, known for his wit and elegance, David Niven." <laughs> I mean that, and I did write David <laughs> Niven's obituary, um, but, but, but that was the style, you know. Yeah, yeah. and somewhere in there, you know, at age eighty or whatever, you would, you would, you would. It was this weird inverted okay. style, um, and and you know, milestones was known for that. Once you graduated to other types of uh, writing, whether it's politics or not, you had a little more freedom in in, in how you could write. Um, but um, but 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 the time style was more just like dramatic you know you had to you had to you had to bring the news to life you know i mean if you just wanted you know uh to know what happened you read the new york times the washington post time you know it was a it was a weekly magazine and 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 you know every every article had to kind of have kind of a drum roll you know mm-hmm. um you know you had to <laughs> you had to you had to, you had to as, as we say you had to make it sing you had to make it right. sing Right. You know, you might be writing about the most boring piece of legislation going through Congress. You had to make it sing, so so that's different from the 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 the, the lean mean style of a of a Dashiell Hammett or a Chester gotcha. Himes. Gotcha. Well, I I
1: saw that you talked about your play earlier, "Brothers in Exile," uh, about James Baldwin, Richard Wright, Chester Himes, and I saw an interview at the time where you said you were swimming in an ocean of research and almost drowning. Yeah. Can you talk about was, – was that about being overwhelmed by the research or writing about real-life figures, or was it about finding your own voice? What what was your state of mind at that time?
2: Yeah, well, you know, my early books involved almost no research at all. You know, yeah. uh, the first book was a memoir. I then wrote a, a bunch of novels that, you know, were sort of like, – went in and out of the crime genre. You know, I, I call a lot of my early books a thriller-ish, you know. Um, <laughs> I wrote a kind of satire about American racial politics called The Last Integrationist. I wrote a couple of books set in Paris, Rendezvous 18th and Ghosts of Saint-Michel. All of those books were set in the time in which they were written. Mm -hmm. Um, All those novels, they were set in the 90s, the early 2000s. Um, When I turned to Brothers in Exile, that was my first time writing about the distant past, writing about a period before I was born. And uh, and Wright, Baldwin, and Himes were all very prolific. And um, I had this feeling that I had to read everything they'd ever written, everything that had ever been written about them. Um, I wrote the first, say, 12, 15 pages of the play, and then applied for a French grant, um, uh, the Beaumarchais Fellowship, which you know funds people working in the dramatic arts, theater, television, uh, radio, cinema, um, and, um, submitted those first 12, 15 pages, learned that I got the grant They give a, a number of them out every year. And, um, there was a reception for the people who'd received the the, the prize that year. And so I went to this reception and, that, <laughs> and by then, yeah, I was just drowning in an ocean of research. I, I had all these books. I, I, I had kind of stalled. I'd stopped really writing and, and was just reading and, and trying to figure out how to go forward and um and i was you know off in a corner having a glass of champagne with one of the judges who was a, an author of historical fiction and i told him about my my dilemma you know it's just like i i feel like i just i have to read all this stuff and i'm not advancing and he said jake you're not writing a biography you're not writing a documentary this is fiction this is your Richard Wright, your James Baldwin, your Chester Himes. And it was the most liberating thing I could have heard. And and, and, and and I found that, oh, yeah, it just freed me up, you know, to say, oh, yeah, well, you know, Chester Himes started writing crime fiction in 1957. Why don't we make it 1953? Because, you know, that served my purposes (laughs) for the relationship between Wright and Baldwin, who had this huge conflict in 1953 where Himes was present. I just, you know, mixed things up. I would take things they'd really written and said and and, then mix it with stuff I completely made up. And and I realized, yeah, this is the freedom of fiction. Even if you're writing historical fiction, it's still fiction. Mm -hmm. And so by the time I got to uh, Viper's Dream, I felt totally free in having Miles Davis walk into the room and <laughs> say whatever you know colonious Monk sitting there in the chair um, um I realized yeah this is not biography this is not documentary um I mix real people and and imaginary people um, um, um with the radio versions uh, some some jazz nerds were upset because i have miles davis present at a recording session in 1945 where it's not really sure if he was there or not yeah well in my version he is He's there. <laughs> you know, because it's fiction you know uh you know, two guys named viper and pork chop weren't at the recording session either you know? <laughs> they are in my novel so um so that was a a, a very liberating thing to hear
1: that's fantastic. You you mentioned Paris before. You lived in Paris for over 30 years. And two people we've already mentioned, James Baldwin, Richard Wright, they moved there as well. I believe you read about that when you were young. Was Paris always a destination for you?
2: Yeah. Well, you know, at Fieldston, that wonderful place where I went to school, um, I was assigned uh, Baldwin's first novel, Go Tell It on the Mountain. Mm. Um, so this must have been 1973. Yeah, 73, 74. Um, I was so moved by that book. It's about, you know, it's a very autobiographical novel about a black kid growing up in a difficult family in Harlem. I was growing up in a difficult family in the Bronx. I loved this novel. And after I read it, I asked my teacher, uh, who is James Baldwin? And and the first thing I remember him saying was, he lives in Paris. I thought, wow, it seemed like such an exotic idea that someone with that background would live in Paris, which I only knew from television. It must have been a few weeks later that I read Black Boy, uh, Richard Wright's memoir of growing up in Mississippi at the beginning of the 20th century. And like Wright, both my parents you know, were part of the what's known as the Great Migration, the big movement of African-Americans uh, in the 20th century from the, the rural South to the urban North. Um, and so that book really spoke to me. And I found out Richard Wright had lived in Paris. Um, so this is beginning to seem like a pattern. It was only later I discovered Hemingway, Fitzgerald, Gertrude Stein, Henry Miller, the whole crew, and just learned that it was this sort of thing that you know American writers would go to Paris, at least for a while. So at exactly the time that I was trying to think, well, maybe someday I might be a writer, I also thought, well, maybe someday I'll be a writer and go to Paris. Um, it'll be 20 years before I got the chance. Um, because uh, Bourgeois Blues, that first book, the memoir about my relationship with my father, that was published in September of 1991. So I've been in this game for a long time, Mark. <laughs> I have my first book 32 years ago. So that book came out in 1991, um, got some nice reviews, was not a bestseller, uh, you know, um, but um, but got some was well received. And six months after it was published, it won a prize. And this was thanks to the same professor who connected me at Time Magazine uh, years earlier. He nominated me for this prize. It had to be nominated in secret. It was called the Lindhurst Prize, and it's one of these great American things. It was just it was it was a three-year grant, um, I, and it was enough money to live on. I got a check in '92, a check in '93, and a check in '94. And, um, it was three years after I quit my job at time magazine, I was totally broke. And so I used the first check in 92 to get out of debt. And then I thought, okay, here's my chance. You know, I'm going to go to Paris for a year. And I arrived in Paris in 1993, thinking I would stay for a year, loved the city right away, met terrific people, artists, writers, a really international crew of, uh, of interesting folks. Um, decided to stay a second year, decided to stay a third year, and at the end of the third year, met the woman I would go on to marry. And here I am after a third history. Yeah. Uh, still in Paris. Yeah. <laughs> well, there was uh, the,
1: they they think about writers differently there, though, don't they? They um they they sort of as soon as they hear you're a writer, there isn't a kind of. Certainly, in the u k it's kind of have I heard of you? well, I've read you kind of thing, whereas they will just say, "You know what do you write? Tell me more kind of thing. have you found that? Is that what you found
2: it's it, in fact, it's exactly that yeah right. when i when i meet when I meet a French person for the first time and I tell them I'm a writer, their first question is, "What do you write?" yeah when I meet an American for the first time and I tell them I'm a writer, their first question is, "Have I heard of you?" Yeah, it, it's uncanny. So uh, it's uncanny, and 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 I mean, I think I didn't know it's the same in Britain um, because really, what it tells you is, you know, the, the French person is interested in writing. The Americans interested in are you a famous writer? Yes. Are you a rich and best-selling <laughs> writer? You know, I think for a lot of Americans, writing has no intrinsic value. It's it's what are you going to get from your writing? And so, it's been great to live in a culture where what I do is just respected on a fundamental level. I I only started getting published in French after I lived here about ten years um, in two thousand three and um, and uh, by a great house known as Rivage, which has a crime imprint, Rivage Noir, founded by the great François Guérif, the editor I've worked most closely with is the great Jean Guillon. Um, I really built my career here, um, at least starting in uh, 2003 and learned when you publish in france somewhere in this country every weekend there's a book festival going on yeah (laughs) somewhere in this country there's a book festival going on and since i go in and out of the crime genre and general fiction i get invited to both types of festivals you know so i'll get invited to straight fiction festivals i'll get invited to crime fiction festivals i was at an english language festival in angers last saturday the day after tomorrow, I'll be in Lille at a French language festival. <laughs> you know, I mean, this is this is the life of a writer in France, and people turn out. I mean, there's just yeah. an enthusiasm uh, for literature that's very different from uh, from what we have in the U.S.
1: Fantastic. Who who are the French uh, crime writers we should be looking out for? On your website, you mentioned Dominique Minotti. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so we we'll be looking at. I my note
2: who, who has been translated into English, mm-hmm. um, her masterpiece is a book called Lorraine Connection. Um, and she's a terrific writer. I mean, she she did write a series of novels with a with a police detective as the protagonist, but she's got a broader vision than that. And and Lorraine Connection is basically about the murderous effects of globalization. It's it, it, it's set in the in 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 the the region of Lorraine, um, in what you would call a French Rust Belt. Town and 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 the Korean the Korean electronics factory has bought up the old steel and and iron works and employing the French people there and uh, an industrial accident triggers this 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 amazing story this sprawling cast of characters of different classes nationalities ethnicities she goes in and out of the minds of all these people and there is just a, a propulsive thriller plot, you know, at the center Mm. of the thing. So Dominique Manotti, that book is in English and it's great. Another friend of mine, Karim Misquet, um, uh, brought out a book called Arab Jazz that was first published in 2012, won the grand prize for crime fiction here. That's fascinating because it's set in the 19th arrondissement, which is a place... Tourists never go. So I, I live in the 18th Arrondissement. Paris is just divided into 20 districts or Arrondissements. The 18th Arrondissement is known because uh, of, of Montmartre and you know the the, the film Amelie, you know, mm-hmm. it's said in the 18th Arrondissement. Um there's more to the 18th than Amelie but uh but people know the 18th. Yes. The 19 is not a place people generally go um um it's 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 very multicultural and and there's a an uncomfortable mix of of, of, of working class grit and and encroaching gentrification that's been going on there for the last 20 years and uh karim uh, who's got a very multicultural background is as well known as a documentary filmmaker in this country as you is a novelist um um publishes novel Arab jazz and it's, it's it's just a great vision of of the real paris that you don't usually see <laughs> in cinema and, uh, and and television so Arab jazz and, and Lorraine connection I would definitely recommend
1: good stuff check that out listeners also i and you don't have to talk about this if you don't want to but i did see uh in your biography that you had a heart attack in 2015 and yeah. we we're, we're always fascinating where writers have these big challenging episodes in in their lives did that change your writing at all did it change your attitude to writing and what you were writing
2: interesting question I I so what happened was it wasn't technically a heart attack so usually when you have a heart attack it's because you have clogged arteries and you know you were eating too much you know cholesterol or whatever um I learned at the age of 54 that I was born with a defective aortic valve. Oh. I I will spare your 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 listeners all, the, all the, the the gory details, but the aortic valve is basically this little gate where, you know, blood from the lower chamber of the heart is pumped through this gate into the aorta, which is like a big tree, and the arteries are the branches of that tree. My gate was basically shredded, and so blood was going up into the aorta and then tumbling back down into the chamber. That is a leak, in, in fact. I had a plumbing problem, so I had really? a leak in my heart. And, you know, in, um, in, in 19th century fiction, you know, there are all these terms for this sort of thing. So, like, a hole in the heart, you know, yes. is, is, is basically that. Um, a heart murmur, that leak makes a sound which is actually what a heart murmur is. It's the sound of a, of a leaky valve. Um, I didn't know I had this problem. And I'm happy to talk about it because I, I wrote a whole article in, in the Los Angeles Times a year after this crisis um, because it was it was two days after my 54th birthday. Um, I was sitting in a chair in my living room. All of a sudden, I was dizzy. I couldn't breathe. My heart was racing. Um, you know, an ambulance showed up. <laughs> I was raced to the hospital. And in the intensive care unit, um, you know, they they did the the, the you know the, the echography, the, the sonogram, and a nurse told me, yeah, you know, you've you've got this uh, this aortic valve problem you were probably born with. And I told her, you're like, how can I not have known? You know, I mean, when I was in high school, I played football, you know, American football. <laughs> you know, I <it> was very <laughs> violent. My my wife is Swiss. We go hiking in the Swiss Alps every summer. I'm like, how <laughs> can I not have known? And she said to me, well. With your condition, the first symptom is often sudden death. <gasps> I said, "What's the second symptom?" <laughs> At my my crowd show marks moment, um, yeah, and you know, and I think often, you know, now you know, you know, when you read about a young footballer just dropping dead on the pitch,
1: yeah,
2: I think that's often. A valve. I think it's often a valve, and 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 it, and it's and it's categorized as a heart attack because people don't know what else to call it, right, you know. Right. But um, but actually, it's 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 a leaky valve, and it just either the aid or or either ruptures, or you're just not getting enough blood pumped into your body. You, you pass out and die. And uh, and I was just incredibly lucky that um that uh, that you know I called the ambulance when I did that they arrived when I did. And then I live in France because, uh, you know, after that first night in the hospital, I was begging them to let me go home. You know, I was like, listen, I'll come back for tests. Just don't. Keep me in the hospital anymore. They're like Monsieur Lamar. You're not going anywhere. (laughs) They like kept me. You know they would have bodily restrained me if I tried to get up from the bed. Uh, They kept me in that ICU for two weeks, and uh, and went through. uh, I went through all sorts of tests. Um, Finally, when they identified the problem um, and problems, because I also had an overgrown aorta, and I had a tachycardia, irregular heartbeat. I had all these heart issues. That I had no clue about, you know, before this um, in- incident. Um, I was a candidate for uh, experimental surgery. Uh, ordinarily, when they when you have a problem with the, aor- the aortic valve, ordinarily the aortic valve is replaced. It's replaced with either a mechanical valve or 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 an animal valve, a pig mm. or a sheep. I have this genius French surgeon who's developed a technique of repairing the aortic valve. And the great thing about that is, you know, basically, I mean, there are some sutures and artificial stuff in there, but but I'm basically being healed with my own material, yeah, wow. with my own tissue, rather than something artificial or, or coming from an animal. Um, and it never has to, I never, theoretically, I will never have to have another procedure done. When they replace the aortic valve, they have to replace the replacement every 10 years. So you have to yeah, keep yeah. going in for um for for these procedures um with me um it's been eight years now i feel great you know i mean i have no uh i mean I, my body's riddled with arthritis but that has nothing to do with the heart <laughs> you, know? <laughs> you know in terms of the stuff that can kill me i'm, I'm doing great you know my <laughs> arteries are clear my blood pressure is perfect the 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 ticker is ticking properly and um and this was all done thanks to this um genius surgeon, Emmanuel Lanzac, who has, you know, been been proselytizing for this for this procedure, you know, over all these years. I was patient 380 i was the 380th person to have this operation done wow. i i don't know what happened to patients one through 379 i don't <laughs> know but uh but i'm i'm basically a prize guinea pig and um and um, you know i'm under surveillance by the you know french medical state i i fill out a questionnaire every year i go see my cardiologist they track my my progress and here's the other great thing, because I live in a country with, uh, socialized healthcare, I paid virtually nothing for this. I, with, with the surgery, all of the tests, the electrocardiograms, everything I went through 47 nights in hospitals, yeah. uh, in, in 2015, I paid the equivalent of about 1500 euros and, you know, uh, which is pretty much the same in dollars, you know? Um, this is nothing. Um, um really, I probably had a million dollars worth of work done on me and I paid fifteen hundred Euros. Um in America at the time, what I had could have been considered a pre-existing condition. Yeah. Uh, Though no, I didn't know about it, I had had this problem my whole life. Insurance companies could have refused to support me uh, to, to to help me pay the, for the for the operation. So um, that was when I, I realized, wow, not only you know have I had a, a wonderful life in in France. Living in France might very well have saved my life, yeah, uh, yeah. because I didn't know about this problem. Has it changed what I was? I, I don't actually think it's changed my writing because I'd already started Viper's Dream. So so I had uh, had the outline for the for the um, for the novel and I had just submitted the pilot, uh, the first episode uh, to my director. And I remember her calling me to give me feedback. She didn't know I was in an ICU, <laughs> intensive care unit. <laughs> and at the end of our conversation, after, I her, after she gave me all her feedback, I said, "Listen, Laurence, by the way," <laughs> I told her, you know what I've been going through. Um, I think maybe Viper's Dream. You know, I, I suppose where it did connect to my writing is once I, once this ordeal was over. I mean, it was basically a six-month ordeal, in and out of hospitals, and all this stuff once I could throw myself into the writing of that project, I think it just really helped me get my head out of, you know, this, uh, this, this, you know, um, brush with mortality. Um, and, uh, and uh, and 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 I and I wasn't somebody who didn't stop and smell the roses, you know. I think I really appreciated life before right, that. I didn't yes. really need that lesson. You know? <laughs> but uh, but writing was a uh, was a uh, I, I I I writing became you know even more of a solace than it had always uh, than it had always been for me, um, um, because uh, it was a way of, of of getting out of this frame of mind where I was just thinking about. Uh, my health uh, day and night.
1: Good stuff. What's coming next from you, Jake?
2: I'm working on another project that's evolving in much the same way as Viper's dream. Um, um, It's a story that I'm working on as both a radio drama and a novel. Um, I can't say much more about it than that. Um, I've been working on it for two years now. Um, And, um, and uh, here's a curious thing with me. I don't know why I've been drawn to the past in the last few years you know as i said my early books were all set in the time in which they were written um then i wrote a novel that has not been published in english it's only been published in french uh, called posterite which is about a dutch female abstract expressionist painter it it followed her life from the the firebombing of rotterdam in 1940 to the, the the terrorist attacks in new york in 2001 it's a real outlier in my books it's uh it, it's not like my other novels at all um then i went to brothers in exile about those three writers in paris in the 1950s Then Viper's Dream, which is set between 1936 and 1961. And now I'm writing this story, another one of my thriller-ish works, set in New York in 1958, three years before I was born. I don't know why my work has taken this turn. Um, maybe it's a function of getting older. Uh, maybe I find the 21st century so baffling. I need to write about the past in order to make sense of it. I don't know, but, um, but, um, but I'm, I'm, I'm drawn to writing about the past now. And so, uh, and so I, I've, Again, I'm working on the two at the same time, you know, and, right. uh, the novel and the radio version, I've just turned in this, this will be five episodes. I've just turned in the, the, the full radio version and I'm in the, the, the thick of the novel. So I think I probably have maybe another year to go on the novel before I turn it into my, uh, to my publisher i'm a slow writer you know i mean I read, you know, i've got friends who write a novel a year you know i've seen some of the people you've had on your show i know uh, you and the other mark wrote a novel in a year i, I mean I, I, this is unimaginable to me really. <laughs> <laughs> a book is three or four years of my life you know
1: well, it's it's always worth the wait. Um, folks, uh, Viper's Dream is out there now. Go grab it and listen to the soundtrack as you read it as well. You won't regret that either. And Jake's great to see you looking fit and healthy, apart from the arthritis, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> but this has been fantastic and hope to speak to you again soon.
2: Thanks very much. Bye bye.
1: Oh man, I tell you what, a guy
0: into jazz and he has a voice like that, it's just made in heaven, isn't it? Smooth, I, isn't I'm it? so I'm that so, so smooth, chilled yeah. out. I'm just, he's yeah. got the perfect, but talking of jazz, I got me thinking listening to his, to his world of jazz and this incredible kind of um, passion that he has for yes. the music. It made me think just how brilliant an example this is of picking something that you love. And it doesn't, mm. it could be knitting. It could be, you know, another form of music. It could be, um, I think you mentioned tiddlywinks earlier, whatever yeah. it is that, yeah. that <laughs> you love as a passion. Why not, why not set a story around that passion? Because it, it, it makes it so much more interesting for the reader when you already have all of this this joy and knowledge around this subject. It kind of brings, it sucks the reader into that world. And I think this this example of Jake's
1: writing, it's yeah, is such a great thing. I think people worry that oh, my interest it won't be of interest to other people i'll bore them but and and the thing is i can tell you right now you can read jake's novel viper's dream and know absolutely nothing about jazz or the jazz world but he will draw you into it and because of his passion for it and his knowledge for it he you will just get swept up in it that's that's the thing and like i said you could be the world's biggest tiddlywinks fan and talk about tiddlywinks tournaments or whatever if you write it well if you write it with passion and in a truthful way, you're going to draw people in. It's, um, I mean, it's, it's, it's uh, in the crow folk. There's a whole bunch of stuff about bell ringing, which isn't my passion. It's my wife's passion. But I made a promise to her, right? Because we went on holiday. And she read a crime novel that had bell ringing in it, and I'm not going to mention the major best-selling author who wrote it. But Claire was furious with it. She left it behind in the Airbnb. She wouldn't even. Do, she was like, I'm, uh, she got really angry because everything was wrong. And I said to her, Ra- "I'm going to promise you, I'm going to put bell ringing in the next book, and I'm going to get it right." And it's weird because. I, the, the Crow Folk now turns up in bell ringing groups on Facebook where people oh, are going, look, it. someone's got it well, right. Here's, here's the <laughs> other thing. If you, get, if, you, if,
0: you, you know, if you have a passion for something or you write about someone else's passion, that group that are passionate about it are going to suck that book in. And yeah. talk about it. And, and that's such a great thing. It also reminds me Mark. I spent about seven years uh, back in the day, um, when I was kind of learning how to do public speaking properly, I went to Toastmasters, Toastmasters which is a yeah. local group, right? Absolutely brilliant. I mean, I had such a blast there. And once I got to a certain kind of level, you do all these kind of, um, you know, you, you work you work through different speeches and different books and tiers. And it's, it's really, really well designed. But I got to a point where I was going each week and, Every week, one or two or three people would do their speech about something. And it was completely random. I had no idea walking into that room what we were going to hear about. There was one guy who was into stock car racing, which I knew nothing about, but I always thought was a bit bonkers. And, and then other people who had very specific, you know, like knitting and all kinds of random stuff. And the one thing I learned was, is that it wasn't the subject. It was how much enthusiasm yes. they had for it. If yeah, they, yeah. But if they got up and they went, oh, um, I really like stock car racing. It's really good. And, you know, I like to smash cars up. Like we were just sitting there bored and thinking this is – and we'd have to give them yeah. feedback saying that you need to put a little bit more, you know, energy into your voice and da-da-da-da. But if somebody was t- talking about knitting, which is not really my thing um, – Actually, my mum's amazing. That she used to knit me everything when I was a kid. I had a, a ladybird's shirt mark with my name underneath it when I was five. Do you know that,
1: and another piece of the puzzle falls into place. <laughs> exactly
0: right. I think that might be the final piece. Actually, everything now makes sense. But um, but if somebody got up and gave gave a talk about knitting which is nothing none of my interest if they were like passionate about it yeah, and they totally. told some great stories about it i would be we'd be riveted we'd be there and we'd be like giving a massive round of applause and we're saying look, passion was great so i think that's a really important thing for people to think to think about when with their stories because it's it's kind of like a it's like a free card in some ways isn't it it reminds yeah, me of Shannon May who says when she writes urban fantasy, she's layering magic over the real world. So she doesn't have to design the real world. She's just layering yes. magic over it. And it's same like you're layering magic or you're laying a story over the world that you already know about, which is the passion yeah, that you yeah. have.
1: So, yeah. Here's yeah. a question. Here's a question. So GCSE English, what did you do for your oral? Cause you had, we had to do, we had to speak for 15 minutes on something. Do you remember what you did? Oh my gosh. All I remember is we were the very first year of GCSEs. Do you remember that? that. I was the second year. We were the oh. second year.
0: Oh, I did my GCSE maths a year early. That's why. Oh, of course uh. you did.
1: <laughs> 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 but English, I can't remember, Mark. I remember oh. doing that oral, but I don't remember what I did it on. Oh, you got to find Do out. You... You've got to think back. Come back next week and tell that me. Is, that again... is the
0: recesses of my imagination that yeah. I haven't thought about. As cobwebs yeah. there. What was yours? Uh, I did Sid Barrett from Pink Floyd. Sid
1: Barrett. Yeah, I did the wow. whole thing about Sid Barrett. Yeah,
0: yeah. See, the thing is, if the if the person doing the um, the grading was a massive Pink Floyd fan, you were like straight A. <laughs> <laughs>
1: right. <laughs> I actually, I think I scored highest in the oral than than anything else. So yeah, I did, I did do quite well. Wow. <laughs> Orals
0: are really scary though, especially in foreign languages. I did an oral in French
1: and oh German, no, I only, only, I only are... do English. Yeah. I just... <laughs> oh my god.
0: <laughs> nightmare nightmare now research was something that jake talked about and he specifically talked about I love this kind of like like an imagery drowning in research it's like <laughs> i'm just seeing a room filled with papers and like jake's head sticking out the top trying to get through and there was this breakthrough moment for him where he somebody said to him you can make this up even though you're writing historical fiction yeah you can yeah. make it up and you can mix facts with fiction which I hadn't really ever thought about it. I know it sounds silly to say that, but I always thought it's one that you, you choose your own adventure. You go full fiction or you go,
1: you know, full factual yeah. and you're really
0: true to the.
1: I mean, what, what I think what we have to appreciate as well is he's writing about Richard Wright, James Baldwin, Chester Himes. These are three titans of black American literature. I mean, these these guys are just geniuses, you know, and it's hallowed ground essentially so you, you really don't want to be feel like you're taking liberties or anything like that but that is it's it's uh it must be such a release when someone else says but make them your richard wright james baldwin chester hines make them yours and it's interesting i was i was on the local radio uh just last week because um they were because the, you know the crown has come back on netflix oh, it for its final yeah. season yeah i love the crown i love the crown and the crown takes huge liberties with, you know, what we perceive as the truth. And I'm air quoting that because who knows what the truth really is. You yeah. know, there there are scenes in there that are complete invention. Uh, and of course, when it started, when it's about, you know, set 80 odd years ago with the royal family back then, we all sit there and we stroke our chins and go, oh, I wonder what that was really like. And of course, now they're doing Diana and Charles and Camilla and all this stuff that we think we know about. And, you know, the death of Diana and all that, all the, all all everything that came out of that and of course because we think it's still fresh in the memory for a lot of people we kind of think well that never happened well that never happened and that never happened which completely misses the point of drama drama takes the essence of something uh you know an author needs to make choices about what they're going to leave in what they're going to take out that kind of thing so it's um if you're ever doing something set in the real world or based on history you're not i mean if the crown was going to be realistic it would be 80 years long with not a single break. I mean, I know I'm being flippant, but that's the truth, you know? And if you want facts, there's Wikipedia right there with, you know, all of that. But even then, You know, you take some of our best historians. So, I don't know, uh, Simon Seabag Montefiore, who published him at Orion. He's he's done brilliant history books, particularly he did a book on young Stalin and Stalin. And they are seen as the definitive books about the life of Stalin. But they're about that thick, and I'm holding my fingers, you know, a couple of inches apart. You know, they're chunky books, but it's not all of Stalin's life. Even Seabag has had to sit down and go, okay, there's stuff I'm going to have to leave out and there's stuff I'm going to focus on because he will have a particular take on it. So that's what Jake is doing. With Richard Wright, James Baldwin, Chester Himes, he's saying you're seeing these guys through my prism, through my passion. You know, talked about you know th- th- that that kind of uh, prism, the way that you see the world. You know, so uh, and it's, it's funny because I'm I'm about to embark on something. I can't talk about it yet. But another writer and I, we found a true story that we can't believe hasn't been made into a movie, and we're like, oh, this is brilliant, and we've actually tracked. The person down. We had to do a bit of detective work, and we found them. And we now in the process of going. Look, we want to tell your story, but in the process of telling the story, this is not a documentary. We want to make a feel good movie out of this, so we're going to have to make changes, and that's going to be a really interesting conversation if you know if they agree to doing it. So, yeah, I'm about to embark on something like this. So, um, yeah, watch this space. <laughs> I love it. I love it.
0: Now, talking of feel good movies. There was a movie that Jake mentioned and as soon as I heard it I thought oh I love that film and it's got a massive place in my heart and and the film is Amelie. Brilliant. And I I just I've got to say like we we were almost named our daughter after after right. the main character <laughs> um but the the strangest thing happened it was it was years ago when that movie came out um for anyone who doesn't know what it is, it's a French movie, in French subtitles, and it is just—it's probably my top, one of my top five movies, but it's definitely my my top feel good movie ever. Mm-hmm. And I remember, it was my birthday on a Wednesday around like in October. It was rainy, and I always try and take my birthday off. It's like a thing that, I, and everyone else's birthday in the family is my tradition. And um, my wife and I were thinking, what what should we do? What do we normally not do? And I thought, let's go to the cinema. Uh, just because we'd never do that on a Wednesday afternoon yeah, yeah, yeah. when kids are at school. And so we went and we just went to this local Cambridge Arts Theatre. If you've never been to Cambridge, go to the Arts Theatre. It's absolutely brilliant. It's like one of those perfect like little theatres that does it right and has all these it. random films that you'd never see in the mainstream cinemas. And we walked in there and there was one film on it. It was called Amelie. And we just sat in. We had no idea what it was. But by the end of the movie, we were we were laughing, we were crying, yeah. and it was just one of those magical moments that I always think about because that movie has such an amazing
1: feel good factor to mm-hmm. it. And so, and I know you've seen it as well, haven't you? I love it. I, 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 Listening to that, I'm thinking, oh, how long's it been since I've seen it? It's on Disney Plus, and it's on my sort of watch list. So I'm going to actually bump it to the top there and, and give it another watch. Yeah.
0: Uh, it must have been again, 20 years. It has to be more than 21 oh, years ago because easily. my daughter's yeah. over that age now. So, yeah, wow. Yeah,
1: yeah
0: But thing. here's the thing. So the, the bestseller experiment challenge for everyone listening today. If you haven't seen Amelie, watch it. And if you have treat yourself, and if you have seen it, and it was a while back, watch it again. It's also, I mean, the reason I wanted to bring it up and make it relevant to this podcast somehow. I mean, we've got the French (laughs) link, so I guess we're right. But it's actually a brilliant example of storytelling as well. The way that that film weaves itself together, you kind of have to watch it a few times just to see how beautifully woven that story is. So it's a great analysis. Of how to write an amazing story, but also you know how we've talked about quite recently, haven't we, on the podcast about emotion, and you did a whole thing about writing with
1: emotion. Mm. That movie gets your heartstrings brilliantly, yeah. and so it's, it's it's one of those films you think it's a bit of fluff to start with, you think it's about yeah. nothing, and then it draws you in, and it's oh, is wonderful. Just all well, I'll
0: say stuff. is if you've watched it, my favourite bit was the Ariel and the dad watching Footy <laughs> on TV. <laughs> brilliant absolutely brilliant but um folks this is uh, we could go on forever about amelie but yeah. do watch it it's a great great story but listen if you'd like to join us in the extended edition of this podcast we're going to talk about some pretty big serious stuff we're going to talk about how a brush with mortality can change your writing forever we're also going to talk about how different people and countries and cultures perceive authors and <laughs> might come up to you and ask you questions about who you are And uh, Mark's going to dive into endings and cliffhangers as well. So if you'd like to dive deep with us on those topics, just pop along to bestsellerexperiment.com forward slash support and um, sign up to support this
1: podcast and get all the extra goodies. So, Mark, I hear there's lots of wins this week. Yeah, lots of good stuff. Actually, we'll start with a question. And this is from Bruce, uh, our new patron. Uh, He says, uh, dear Marks, um, I, I, I have a weird surname bruce robert vocht which is a swiss german surname pronounced with a dutch guttural g so again apologies if i've if i've mangled it for you bruce so vocht i think like like Van like van gogh we say van gogh but i think it is van gogh it's, it's like that whereas americans might go van gogh but it's yeah. van gogh um you. and he says it's a swiss german surname uh and he's he's Basically, he doesn't, He thinks he needs a pen name. So he's going, what pen name shall I choose? My grandmother's surname was Dexter, which I like. But does Bruce R. Dexter work? I think it does. Sounds Aren't there good. already too many R initials in authors? Maybe in fancy, maybe, maybe. I mean, maybe that's, that's a good thing. So he's got a few projects, uh, you know, and he appreciates any advice. So what do we think, folks? Uh, are we thinking Bruce R. Dexter sounds good to me or oh, I did point out to Bruce I said there is a science fiction an acclaimed science fiction author who has a version of his name aE van vocht uh, <laughs> and uh I looked it up and uh he the van he added uh just to sort of lead the 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 reader of his name into the the second visa van vocht he was just a vocht so maybe stick with your original name but listeners what do you think let Bruce know yeah, uh, let me know. Yeah, yeah.
0: I think yeah. I think Bruce R Dexter has got all the all the rings Tix, of the luck. Like, yeah. really great great author, all the boxes. Like, classic name. I must say, I mean, I've I've got I've got history with this mark, my surname, of course DeBow, you know. yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Or Desvox, <laughs> as Desvox. I'm also known. And it is it's a really big one. It's a hard like in the world of Google or in the world of you know anything podcast, audio, radio where people hear your name and they don't, they don't know how to spell it, then it kind of blocks you going, you know, and easily finding that person on, yeah. you know, and get their website. So yeah,
1: it's a, it's a really important question. So yeah, let's have some suggestions, folks. Good luck, Bruce. Excellent. Um- I had a lovely note from Jenny Roman, who is at Slightly Turquoise on uh, Twitter. And and she's done, she says, many of you know, I'm using the 200 words a day approach to writing. I found that really works for me. So I've made a quick video and it's an absolutely delightful video, uh, which I'm going to share a link to that. So you can all check that out. But she said, you know, do you dream about writing a novel? Have you tried NaNoWriMo, but not been able to keep up? Then try 200 words a day. She says, honestly, it's a game changer. I had so many unfinished first drafts, but just writing 200 words a day, it helped me finish my first novel clear to the last by jenny roman which is available now on amazon and i'm going to put a link in the show notes so you can all check that out
0: brilliant i love it it's absolutely fantastic and you know what mark secretly in the background he says announcing it on public (laughs) podcast land (laughs) i'm working on version two of the 200 word challenge oh
1: yeah all right new and improved it might be a it while, well,
0: but it's, okay, it's there's, there's things bubbling underneath that because lots of people with suggestions of what they'd like to see next. So, yeah, brilliant. watch
1: this space, folks. Brilliant, brilliant. Um, Katie Wells on the Academy. I love this one. Uh, she says, we talked about milestones. She says, bookshop dream achieved. Mm-hmm. Uh, even before I wrote A Blend of Magic, which is set in Whitby, which she writes under the name Kate Kenzie, so check that out. Uh, I long to see my book in Whitby Bookshop. I've just had an email to say they want to place an order for some uh, an indie author dream come true time for a happy dance. It definitely is, Katie. Congrat and and Whitby is a wonderful place uh, and for ma- for a book about magic that's the place where you want to sell it up in Whitby. Um, so yeah, it's that's brilliant. I love that goal. Excellent goal. Brilliant.
0: Yeah, well Thanks, done, Katie. Katie. Yeah, what a what a moment. I mean, you can never probably replace. It's like
1: you know your first love. Your first book in a bookstore. Yeah. <laughs> it's got to be up exactly.
2: there.
1: Exactly. And we would in the academy as well. Final manuscript sent to publishers said yesterday, I finished editing my manuscript for the umpteenth time. Uh, words read aloud, function is excellent at highlighting errors. Good, uh, good top tip. Uh, when the publisher first asked for my final manuscript, I was a bit perplexed. Hadn't he already got the one I submitted? Then I realized I had the chance to go over it again just to make sure everything was as good as possible. So that's what I did. And I sent it off. Ahead of the deadline, you gave me. So feeling rather pleased. Congrats on that, that brilliant stuff. Brilliant. And 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 finally, uh, Steve Gowland in the uh, BXP Group on Facebook. He's he's doing an interview with the amazing Adrian Tchaikovsky. So Steve, who has been – he he did the unofficial bestseller experiment uh, Facebook group, which uh, he shut down uh, basically because he's he's concentrating on his writing. But Steve was a great – he interviewed me on there. I think they're still up on Facebook somewhere. Uh, I think there's a link in the show notes. Um, But he's been a great interviewer, Steve. So his reward is he's now interviewing the amazing Adrian Tchaikovsky at Waterstones in Liverpool on Thursday 7 of december and i can tell you i've interviewed adrian at mcm comic-con he is the nicest guy ever he's a fantastic talk about a line right i was at i was a mcm in may which is when i think i interviewed him i we all went up to the the forbidden planet um stand to sign some books and adrian's line honestly man it was like it was like the feeding of the 5000 it just stretched off into the <laughs> distance and there's me like oh hello <laughs> so but he's You're a like, lovely guy you like give me here. give
0: me some of your books i'll do them for you yeah exactly budget <laughs> up things up, up.
1: <laughs> So it. Thanks everyone for those. And good wow. luck with
0: that, Steve. You'll do brilliantly. Excellent. And if you've got any wins that you'd like to share with us, don't forget to drop us a note. You can go to our website, bestsellerexperiment.com. Click on the contact form and send us your win. We'd love to hear about all of the things that you're achieving, big and small. And we always say that, is that. You might think it's no big deal, the small ones, but you know, it's. we talked about this in the Extender, didn't we, Mark? It's the tiny things that make the biggest changes in our life. So celebrate every enjoy every sandwich that was a book I once read
1: enjoy every sandwich Mm. so send us your I had a bloody great sandwich today did you Oh mate, I found a new place in Whitstable. Um, I forgot what it's called. I should give them a plug. Oh, I had a BLT to die for. Absolutely oh, fantastic. You should endorse <laughs>
0: them on the podcast, Mark, and then they might give you a free sandwich every Wednesday. Yeah, I'm morning. an idiot.
1: I should have written it down. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's always next week. Brilliant stuff. Then how can people find us on socials? They can find us on Facebook. We're Bestseller Experiment. Twitter, Instagram, and Threads. We are at Bestseller XP. Uh, uh, drop us a line on bestsellerexperiment.com. There's a contact tab there and thanks as always to our editors dave and jd
0: absolutely and if you would like to sign up to the 200 word challenge folks it is legendary you might you might be you know still hanging hanging through with your naNoWriMo and you might have given up on the first week or you may have not ever started it the 200 word challenge is such a great way to just build that daily writing habit every single day Throughout the year. So go to 200wordchallenge.com and sign up. And also, if you would like to join the newsletter, the Bestseller Experiment podcast newsletter, just pop along to the website, Bestsellerexperiment.com, click on newsletter, pop your email address in, and we will send you updates each week of each new show that we're doing and all the great things that you're going to learn by listening to it. So, Mr. Stay, have a fantastic week. And to everyone out there, and we were talking about mortality in the extended, we got very deep. <laughs> But like, this is a week you're not going to get back, folks. So make the most of it. Write some amazing words. Just go for it. Pour your heart out on that page and see what you can create. And we wish you all the very best. We'll see you again next week. It's goodbye from Mark 1.
1: And goodbye from Mark 2. Goodbye. Goodbye. (laughs)